Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. But yeah, I was doing too much for sure. And this is where I started to fall off the rails a little bit, to be honest. Like, because I had an inkling that I wanted to be true to myself and that I wanted to be of service. I felt this calling of like a yoga teacher to help others. I felt this calling to use my life as an artist to help others. But I was still like in my 20s, like navigating the world. and, And there's only so many hours in the day. And so I was like, okay, well things started to get a little rickety, you know, and I'm not saying that I flew off the rails then because that happened later. Just kidding. (laughs) But I was definitely, I started to struggle a little bit. Like how could I be a school teacher, a nanny, a professional artist, a a film actor? Like how could you do all that and also still not even be able to make the rent? Hi, friends, and welcome back to another episode of At the End of the Tunnel with me, Light Watkins. So in today's interview, I got to chat with somebody who started what could be viewed as one of, if not the largest yoga communities in the world. But here's the thing. 99% of her yoga students have never actually seen her in person. They've only seen her through their device as she was instructing yoga from her living room in Austin, Texas, and usually with her co-teacher Benji curled up next to her yoga mat. If you can't tell from the hints, I'm referring to Adrian Mishler, the Austin native who started the uber popular Yoga with Adrian YouTube channel with a friend of hers in 2012, which grew into one of the most searched yoga platforms on the internet. And that's actually how I first discovered Adrian. It was a few years ago. I wanted to do yoga at home. So I went onto YouTube to search for yoga videos and I kept seeing yoga with Adrian, yoga with Adrian. And so one day I decided to give it a try. And very quickly, I became addicted, not just to the yoga, but to Adrian's ease of instruction, her style, her super inviting home environment and to Benji, her lovely dog. (laughs) As it turns out, I wasn't the only one completely obsessed with Adrian's videos. She's been featured on the Today Show a couple of times. Think pieces have been written about Adrian and her dog. Some journalists have referred to her as the Mr. Rogers of yoga, or rather Miss Rogers. A lot of people say that if it wasn't for Adrian's yoga offerings, they wouldn't have made it through quarantine in 2020. As you'll hear in our conversation, Adrian was born into a theater family. She was an actress. She was a children's yoga teacher. She also worked in an ice cream shop. And she had about three other jobs. And as you'll also hear, Adrian was presented with the idea of starting a YouTube channel by a friend of hers who could see something in her that she couldn't quite see in herself. And he wanted to help her launch this platform. And it all came down to a choice. Do you keep the stable job that will allow you to potentially retire at 40 or or do you take this crazy, risky, chancy 
opportunity of starting this online platform at a time when yoga was supposed to be this practice that that could only be taught in person. Well, lucky for us, Adrian chose to take the leap of faith. And like many movements, Yoga with Adrian was not an overnight sensation. The earlier videos were only getting 10, 20, maybe 30 views, but she kept at it. And through consistency and a deep desire to build a, an authentic community, Adrian's videos eventually caught fire. So as of this conversation, her channel has amassed more than 7 million subscribers and her 500 plus videos that she's created have garnered over 600 million views. Holy moly, that's double the population of the United States. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. We're going to examine how it all came together. What are the obstacles? What did she learn along the way? What was her mental state? All those things. A couple of side notes, though. This conversation actually took place before George Floyd happened. And I'm only mentioning that because we don't really talk a lot about her activism, which is something that I've been doing more and more of on my podcast uh, interviews after George Floyd. But I want to give Adrienne credit because she's emerged as one of the biggest voices in support of black lives. And I just want to acknowledge that on the front end and thank her for using her massive platform to bring more attention to social justice. Secondly, we had a very long and deep and reflective conversation with a lot of fun little tangents. And in the interest of just keeping it as streamlined as possible, I thought it was best to cut it down a bit. So, yeah, one day maybe we'll release the whole unedited thing. But for now, I'm honored to introduce you to this this amazing, beautiful, humble woman that has created so much inspiring content that has made the world a better place in so many ways. She's truly one of my personal inspirations. And without further ado, here is Miss Adrienne Mishler. So Adrienne, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Super excited to talk about your, your story and your background. As always, I like to start my conversations talking about little Adrian, childhood. My question to you is, thinking back, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? The most memorable, I guess, would have to be something in the theater. I often would take like an activity bag with me to my mom's work, which was uh, the theater. She was a theater professor and then a director at night. And my dad also worked in the theater. In fact, my parents met as actors. <laughs> I guess the thing that comes to mind is just either being with my backpack of toys in like the aisles of the theater, or this is kind of funny, at home, back then, the scenic design was done with like a actual model. We had this model of the theater that my mom worked at and, and taught at, and it's a beautiful theater in the round uh, located at the university that she worked at for 21 years, which also ended up being the university that I went to school and ultimately I grew up there. It was called St. Edwards University, Catholic University here in Austin. And it was like, kind of big, big playground, like model of the theater in the round with the four VOMs and, you know, the, the four entrances and exits and the kind of raked seating, four of them. And then it's like empty stage. 
And I played with that for the majority of my childhood, just with like different little toys, like whether they were porcelain pieces of the nativity from Christmas, like I'd put them on there. Or I remember using like McDonald Happy Meal toys, just like that junk, you know, like, but also strange things like, you know, flowers and and like sticks and like, no joke. I was an only child who grew up in the theater. So maybe it's like, oh yeah, it seems obvious, but, but I was very imaginative and I played with that model off and on for a long time, just different things, creating different sets and, and different scenarios and environments. Do you remember enjoying that as a child? Like, did you really look forward to being there in those aisles with your little toy bag or was it boring for you? I think I remember being present and engaged. I mean, I'm sure just being a child, you know, there were times where I'd prefer to do something else. But in my memory, like in my, the the feeling I have about it was that I was always really into it. (laughs) I was always really happy to be there. And I think my mom in particular did a good job of making sure I was still seen and kind of felt. And she would quite literally put me in the plays, even though there wasn't a child in the chorus or in the story at all. And she would also invite or, you know, allow me to bring friends. So I did, you know, I was very blessed to do a lot of incredible things that I don't, I still to this moment have no idea how, how my parents did it, how they afforded, (laughs) you know, gymnastics, ballet, tap jazz, all these things. So I did go to like camps. I went to horseback riding camps and took piano lessons early on. But I remember my mom always allowing me to bring a friend or multiple friends to the theater, particularly I have memories of like spring break and the summer, like packing our lunches, packing those activity bags and like just spending the whole day there, like with summer stock. So I was either in the plays or had had a friend. And then I was a very shy child, which I know is like extremely hard to believe for (laughs) most people in my life now, but a lot of my mom's students were like big brothers and big sisters. So I, I was included. I was it was definitely not the type of childhood where it was like, here, go in here and close the door. I, w- I was always kind of included. Did you feel like you were a natural performer or did you have to work hard at it? I don't know if I had the awareness like as a child that I was even performing. It was just innate. I'm sure I was very entertaining, but it was strange. I was kind of always performing. And it's interesting to kind of end up where I am now. My dad has pointed to this and kind of named it lovingly. But, you know, I used to put on lots of plays in the house and dances and and shows. And we couldn't really afford a video camera, but every once in a while, my mom would have one for a project, like rented out, you know, from the university. And so when she wasn't using it, I would heft it up on the tripod myself and hit record. And we have these home videos of me like dancing and performing and just doing number after number for just like the camera. No one else is there. And so my dad, so we're like, yeah, I'm kind of doing that now, (laughs) but hopefully to benefit others a little bit more, but yeah, was always kind of performing. I don't think I, I was aware of it though. Okay. And St. Edwards University obviously is in Austin, Texas. So you grew up in Austin. You grew up an only child. Sounds like both of your parents were in the household. When reflecting back on your whole childhood, 
How would you describe it? Well, the older I get, the more experience I have with myself, but also as a witness, you know, just being there for for friends and, and the community and, and just really the, the more stories that I absorb, the more I realize how incredibly blessed I was to have a totally nurtured childhood. I mean, we all fall and scrape our, our knee, but I really had a loving childhood. I spent a lot of time with both of my parents. They did split up. I think I was in third or fourth grade when, when they split up. But even that they did in the most, you know, loving and amicable way for me. And and I can see that now, especially looking back. But I would say it was a very nurtured childhood, very loving. And you were very happy? I was a very happy kid. You know, a couple of years ago, I wouldn't be able to say this, this just clearly, which is interesting because I'd be afraid that people who didn't have happy childhood or loving childhood would that that hearing this would make them feel sad you know that that's where i would go but i realize now again after after hearing and just absorbing more and more stories what a privilege and what a blessing that is and how to just name it and be grateful for it is actually a really empowering thing for me to then go okay i can take that energy and and use it to kind of help others do you remember any of the lessons your parents instilled in you when you were younger? Definitely, which is special because I've always been really independent for better and for worse. <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, my cousin who I'm very close with, Alicia, I don't remember what we were talking about, but she had lovingly or kind of just a matter of fact, at least said something like, well, you've always done things your own way. And I don't really take offense to things easily. So it surprised me that I was like, that that kind of made me turn my head. And I was like, what do you mean? Although it made me turn my head and I felt a little like, hey, what do you mean by that? (laughs) She's right. And it was great that I reacted to it so that I could take a real mental note because I have always done things my own way and, and been really independent. But having said that, I feel... The essence of my parents, who are thankfully still alive and and healthy, I feel them almost every day in the work that I do. And I can remember my dad being really caring and creative when I was a really young little girl. He would write me short stories, read them at bedtime. We had this character, Dobie Doo, that we would kind of follow. And I feel like even though I don't remember the exact moral lessons of Dobie Doo right now, I know that he he had a big heart and that there was lessons of compassion there and also like humor. It's probably where I get some of my silly humor from. And then my mother really went to town, did not hold back <laughs> in probably some of the more formidable years of my life that preteen stage. And really when I was 14, I was 18, you know, and when I was 18, I was 28. And then now I'm like, whoa, slow it down. No, no, no. Let's go back. (laughs) Let's find that young girl again. And when you were thinking about growing up and what do you want to be when you grow up, was acting always your main primary aspiration? It was. I wanted to be a teacher as well. After I got over the, the whole like primate biologist and 
those sort of things like veterinarian. And then I was serious about the primate biologist thing for a while. I was really obsessed. And I think like most young people, you know, I had an affinity for animals and, and all that, but always wanted to be an actor. I think always wanted to be an artist. And I realized that too, a couple years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is actually from the UK and she's an artist. And we were talking about what a gift it is to know what you want to do and to have known what you want to do. And of course I can change and that would be a gift too, being able to change your mind. But in a lot of ways, I've always, I'm doing what I wanted to do. I realize I can't do it all. That's the thing that really has challenged me in the last five years in particular is like, oh, I can't really be a full-time actor and artist and a full-time writer <laughs> and entrepreneur and a, the, the type of guide and friend I want to be like kind of all at once. When you were imagining your ascent into becoming a successful actress, were you imagining it as a film actor, a stage actor? Where were you thinking it would go? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. I think as a kid, of course, I just wanted to be like a famous actor. The thing is, I was so immersed in like academia. Like, of course, I didn't know that's what it was, but like, no joke, no joke. I was so immersed in like the classroom, you know, the rehearsal room that I had a, I had a very different lens of like, of it all. It wasn't until like, I guess I was starting high school that I started to even take note of like, Julia Roberts and Benjamin Bratt and what a beautiful couple they were and how my boyfriend at the time and I kind of resembled them and you know maybe maybe someday but really yeah I was kind of in this setting I wasn't like going to acting school you know I was like this fly on the wall for Trojan women <laughs> I was like watching To Kill a Mockingbird for the 90th time yes I was singing songs to Greece and 
That was one of my first paid jobs. Actually, I was working backstage for a summer production of Grease. I mean, that was kind of my like snobbery and as a teenager is like, I wanted to be a real actor, you know? And then pretty early on, when I was 17, I was introduced to a company based out of New York called City Company, S-I-T-I. And I try to speak to City Company uh, sometimes when I'm chatting about my background because outside of my mother at that time, that was a big influence on the steps that I took into adulthood. And also to this day, like, like that training and the people that I met, doing that training and creating work with them in the years to follow, in a lot of ways, I believe that has a bigger influence on the way that I teach now than any of my yoga teacher training or even my my practice. So it's vital that I think I met that company and that training when I did because it influenced the steps that I was going to take moving forward, both as an actor and as a yoga teacher. Let's talk about that for a second. So you moved to New York from Austin to study with this acting group. What were some of the tenets of the training that you're experiencing with the group? My mother, again, one of my biggest angels, you know, being the artistic director at this point at St. Edward's, she had brought Anne Bogart, American theater director, into town to do a symposium. So from New York. And Anne brought some of her colleagues, her company members, to follow up the symposium with a weekend of training. And where we would get, where not we, excuse me, where my mother's students <laughs> would get, you know, kind of a taste of this professional training. And there are two sister trainings. One is called the Suzuki method of actor training. And it is a very physical practice, ultimately designed to be a vocal training. And then it's counter training. It's called the viewpoints, which was developed by Anne Bogart, the director from a training that was originally developed in the dance world by a woman named Mary Overly, who, bless her heart, just passed away. May she rest in peace. That vocabulary or that training was really built for the company to build new work, to create a shared vocabulary. So I don't know if you're picking up on it, but I just like get super nerdy and I'm like, already, if you can get a little taste of like, okay, we have this very physical discipline training that's all about alignment and breath control because we said it was a vocal training and kind of action within the alignment. But it really kind of, you know, mirrors the yoga that I share in a lot of ways. So yeah, my mom had brought them to town and I was still in high school. Like I was still in high school and I probably drove my clunky clunker junker Volvo with no AC over to the university, like after getting out of high school. And my, you know, my mom had invited me to once again, be a fly on the wall if I wanted to. And I did because I was like, oh yeah, I'm so smart. I know who Jan Bogart is. So I went and as always, I had a, a little, I don't know if I had a little moleskin back then, but you know, I had a little journal and a pen and I sat at the back of the hall and I was blown away. I could go on and on about this moment, this weekend, but in a nutshell, somebody asked me some questions and they turned everything on its side and, and I just got sucked in. I was extremely inspired, which led me to then take my mom up on the offer for sitting in on the training. So this was like a Friday night and then the training was going to be Saturday and Sunday. And this training is very rigorous. It is 
not for the faint of heart, but ultimately it is one of the best, in my opinion, professional trainings for, for live theater, for performance. So it made a lot of sense to me at the time. It was like something that I could really dig into. And the company was taking on a lot of classic texts as they still do. We would do long pieces of challenging text like uh, Chekhov or Mr. Shakespeare, things like that. Just really juicy. So I, I got into the training and one of the company members, a man by the name of Jayad Araisa, I remember him coming up to me afterwards and saying, because the company was then going to stay on and, or come back to do a play. You know, my mom really did an incredible thing by inviting them to come. It was special. And I think a lot of people learned later what an incredible opportunity that was. But of course, at the time, nobody, you know, we were so naive. Jayad came up to me after, I think it was the first day at the end of the day and said, nice work, young lady. Are you auditioning tomorrow? And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, struggling to find my voice. I was like, I'm actually not a student. I'm in high school. I'm Melba's daughter. And he didn't break his focus with me. He looked at me, kept his gaze and said, nice work, young lady. Are you auditioning tomorrow? And I was like, oh, I had one monologue in my pocket then. And that was, guess, guess what? Surprise, Abigail from The Crucible, of course. Some of those those early days with that company are probably the scariest days of my life to date. And I'm not talking nerves, like, you know, I'm talking full-fledged vulnerability. So I think beyond the actual training itself, it was like my whole experience then at that age with the training has a lot, a lot, a lot to do with the person I am now, but also with the way I've decided to share things and, and build things and, and hold space. What was the plan? Right, you finished high school and then what were you going to do next? That moment of meeting the company really <laughs> it sounds so dramatic, how apropos, but it really changed my life because, you know, my parents were really supportive of of me doing whatever I felt called to do. And, you know, I, I will be honest, there was like this moment because, you know, how in high school they put you through some of those weird classes where they're like trying to help you find out what you want to do and like who you are and what your personality is. And I wish we could get more meditation and yoga into those moments versus those packets of weird questions um, that give you anxiety because you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I could barely like pick out this outfit today. But that said, I think those types of packets probably led me to think like, oh, should I be a lawyer? Or like, I want to make money. I don't know if you can make any money. Right. Because your parents were struggling, it sounds like. So yeah. I mean, the fact that my mom went into academia is nothing short of amazing. Not because she's not smart, because she's she's a genius. And in, in fact, she was the first of her siblings at the time, I think, to have gone to college. I think she's like the first Mexican-American woman to get all of the PhDs that she has, which are three. You know, like she went for it. And that's another really important part of my story too, because 
it's only now I'm 35 and I'm learning Spanish for the first time. And I'm really going back and looking at like, why don't I speak Spanish? My mom is Mexican. And it's because she, you know, when they came from Wyoming to Austin, it wasn't even that she was like, no, mija, we can't speak Spanish. She said it like didn't even cross her mind. And she's so focused on, she wanted more. She wanted to work in an environment that people like her were not getting hired. So she was just so focused on that, that I didn't learn Spanish. And it's funny too, because she even says she didn't even know what she was getting herself into moving from Wyoming to Texas, being petite, Hispanic, darker skinned lady. She said she looked back and realized, oh, wow, what were we thinking coming here to do that? But she did well. And if it weren't for that, I think it would have been even more of a struggle. Although, you know, our angels are pretty good. So who knows? But uh, the fact that my mom had worked her way up, basically, I mean, she really did work from the bottom to the top at that university. That had a big influence on kind of how, how I saw things. But the term starving artist was kind of revered and still is in a lot of ways as like, cool. Like that was a goal. Like, Ooh, I can't wait to be a starving artist. <laughs> like what? And one of my dear friends who I work with now on the FWFG team, we've had conversations about this probably once a year, but you know how we really have to be conscious of that moving forward. And especially when trying to save and promote the arts and nurture young artists as being honestly, change makers, we have to catch ourselves as, as we're doing with a lot of things right now. Right. And, and look at that framing and, and, and really ask like, is this serving? And the whole starving artist thing, it ain't serving. Like it sucks. In fact, in my, my hometown of my city, you know, I've watched the starving artists go from like being the coolest cats in town to having nothing, no space, no job, no art. So you ended up going to St. Edward's and studying acting and staying uh, in Austin? Yes. Yeah, sorry. I just kind of went off on the starving artist thing. guess I had to get that out. But uh, yeah, no, this is an interesting question for me because this part of my childhood or my story is, I think, unique and strange and dreamlike for me <laughs> because I was very close with my high school drama teacher and I always loved to dance and like, I liked sports. I liked movement, you know, like I liked moving my body. I wasn't like doing yoga per se, but I wasn't, I felt for, for a kid my age, I was in my body probably more than other kids my age. And, you know, I was doing musical theater all through my preteen years and I was moving, but right around like 16, 17, I was very close with my high school drama teacher and I loved to read, you know, I replaced the model set design with like shelves of old Samuel French scripts. And I mean, I was in it, you know, and I didn't want to be there anymore. Like I loved my best friend, Sydney at school. I loved my high school drama teacher. I love my community, but I wasn't into the environment. And Sometimes I wonder like if I'm going to have a memory that pops up and I, I don't say this like jokingly or in jest. I mean, I say this with grace. Like sometimes I wonder like, is there something there that I'm not remembering, you know, <laughs> that's going to reveal itself. But maybe like my cousin says, I just always like to do things my own way. And, and honestly, I think a lot of it was, I was already spending so much time 
in the university setting with my mom and being treated like an adult, whether I was like worthy of it or not, who knows? <laughs> but you know, I was, I was being treated like an adult and I was being asked hard questions. And I was, you know, in these plays at night where we would do script work and dramaturgy and it wasn't just like learning steps, you know, I was, I was doing, um, Spanish golden age plays and, and stuff like that. So, I think a lot of it was just that, that I was, I was growing, I was ready. I wanted to grow up faster than the structure of things were really letting me. I know you were reading the spiritual books. Was that like your thing or were you religious or what was your centering? What was your method for centering yourself? Yeah. Well, I grew up Catholic, <laughs> surprise, from my mom's side of the family, big, big Mexican family, the Martinez family. And then my dad was Christian. And then both my parents shifted through their evolution into a more spiritual point of contemplation, I guess, space. And they both are still to, to this moment, very spiritual. And that's still very present in the way that we speak to one another. But funny enough, I used to like to go to church. So I was going to the little chapel with my mom at the university our Lady Queen of Peace is what it's called. And they had a great band. I mean, Catholic Church really knows how to hoop it up. Like I used to love the music and and the ritual and still do love the ritual of church. But when my parents kind of started to to shift and investigate their own, you know, <laughs> I'm 35 now, so I'm like, I'm I get it, you know. And they started to question things and just investigate other ways of practice, I guess, of contemplation. I was then going to church with my neighbor who they would often take me in and, and same thing, she would come and stay with us. And so I used to like to go with their more traditional family to church <laughs> and laugh in church, of course, till we were going to be. And then they would like go out to a nice barbecue brunch afterwards. You know, like I never had rituals like that. So I hopped on their train for a good bit. And then probably around the time that I was maturing and beginning to kind of come into my own 15, 16, 17, my mom and I had a little ritual of going to the bookstore, like just for fun, just to like chill out and read and drink a coffee or a tea and come home smelling like incense because the whole store smelled like incense. One of those spiritual bookstores. Yeah, it's actually just an independent bookstore that still is rocking and rolling here in my hometown now. Shout out to book people, but they still do have a little section. Of course, back then, I think it was a little more pungent, but uh, we would spend, this sounds so romantic, me telling it now, like sweet, but it's true. We would spend hours at the bookstore just, and you know, like we would buy buy things too, but we would just like read and peruse and sit on the ground and be together, but not together. And my mom would, I think she would get like immersed in astrology and I somehow landed, you know, like in the Sufi poetry, it's not far. It's just like a couple of doors down. Uh, and that's a memory, childhood memory that I have that I'll treasure forever. And sometimes when I'm feeling a little, eh, like I will go to that bookstore on my own and just kind of roll around with a coffee and spend some money there. That's when I started to pick up on some of the poetry that has carried me through to now, really. <laughs> and 
I think about my mom and how that was her like time to let off steam and how like, yeah, sometimes we were reading like books on acting or theater, but no, I think she was like also using that time to like engage and teach herself about the things that fascinated her. And I feel like I've kind of picked that up from both my parents. My dad is the same way. You know, we just had a Zoom the other day, just catching up and he's not downtrodden. He's still talking about all the things he wants to do and all the things he wants to learn. And both my parents are like that. And I can see that in me. So, oh my God. So here I am at 17, 18. <laughs> and I was already like, I was out of the house. I like, I moved out as soon as humanly possible. No offense to my mom. I just really wanted to, I wanted to own my life. I wanted to, to make some magic. I wanted to unfold the story. And I was like pretty excited and pretty scared but I also think I must have had some confidence, probably thanks to my mom and dad always encouraging me and, and telling me that I was worthy. I've been thinking about that a lot lately as I continue to build work for my current community, you know, how important it is the way we speak to each other and how that can have such a big impact on the way we perceive ourselves, which of course influences every step. So I had some confidence. I must have because I went to that theater director, Anne Bogart, who's like huge, and asked her for letter recommendation. Because at this point, I had gone to their training in upstate New York, and I was the youngest person to ever attend at 17 years old. From that point then, I did some training with them in LA. So, I mean, I was pretty committed. Like, I was working. And I had plans to audition at Juilliard and NYU and Columbia, which I ended up auditioning at some of those just to say I did it. But because my mom was bringing City Company back to Austin to work at St. Edwards, and I was a good student. I didn't, I wasn't like a perfect student, but I was an A student. And I ended up getting my GED just so that I could graduate a year early so that I can enroll in college a year early so that I could be a part of the beginning of this collaboration with City Company, like in an official capacity. Because I was already, you know, I was already spending more time at the university than at school. You know, I had all of these absences. I had A's, but the absences were starting to mess with my report card. And I always had a way of like, I <laughs> I have friends who tease me to this day, like, only you would miss your geometry final and then somehow talk the teacher into letting you take it after school was over and then passing. I just think that was a clear sign that I was ready to start something. So I look back and I'm like, that's crazy that I did that because I, I feel like I could have potentially harmed myself <laughs> in in that. But no, that was a big move. So I graduated a year early. The sad part about that was leaving my beloved best friend behind and leaving that environment a little early. But I didn't take a year off. I immersed immediately into private Catholic university setting where I started and still have some of those relationships, some beautiful creative and also, you know, just friendships. As far as your trajectory was, you were on the way to becoming a working professional actor and possibly even moving to New York or L.A. at some point soon after that. Yeah, well, because I fell so in love with the training, it was just like a whole it was a whole new world because it no longer put an endpoint on work. 
it was all about process, you know, which is like, hmm, funny enough, we talk about that in yoga all the time, or I, at least I hope we are, you know? So it was, yeah, it was about the process of creating. And even in the art itself, it was like this whole new world was opened up to me in which asking questions were now more important than like presenting something, you know? And it was, you know, so it was like, and and right away, you know, I think the first show, yeah, the first show I did with J. Ed, which was one of several, you know, and even the work that I did up with the company in upstate New York, like there was already political elements in the work. When I went and, and did the training in upstate New York, you have to be accepted into this training. So for me to get accepted at 17 was a big deal. I'd never been away from home, you know, I was like staying indoors. And I remember two weeks into the four-week training, Anne Bogart herself in our, our Monday composition class was like speaking, you know, talking to something and without taking a breath, like landed her eyes on me and said, and did everyone know Adrian's only 17? And I was just like, no, mortified because I'm working with these people like in small groups to build composition. But even then, yeah, there, there were elements of po- politics there and morality. And I mean, come on, it's the classics. We were At that point, I was working on Marivo's La Dispute. We were working on that piece. And, and anyway, when I came back to Austin, enrolled in school early, I even got a performance scholarship, which is kind of amazing because obviously there's the element of nepotism. So my mom was not allowed to be involved in any of my stuff. And I got a performance scholarship anyway. So that helped me pay for, for, for some things. But the first piece I did with Jay Ed was political. So it wasn't just that I was like being introduced to like avant-garde theater. It was like I was creating meaningful work. And who cares if it was meaningful to everyone or not? I was learning what that felt like, you know, the difference. We were creating work that that asked questions in a nutshell. And was there any yoga happening in your life at this time? Well, when I went to beautiful Saratoga Springs for this first city company training at that pivotal age, 17, I came back and I was like, damn, I am weak (laughs) because this training is super physical and just my nature, my personality. I do have a perfectionista side, I admit. And I came back and was just like, okay, well, what the hell do I need to do to make sure I'm not weak like that ever again, you know, to make sure that I'm not caught in the headlights like that ever again, you know, also practically. Did something happen specific? Were you on stage (laughs) when you realized how weak you were? The training itself is very physically demanding. And so you do the training to help basically equip you for rehearsal. So rehearsals were great. And and I actually was having a visit with uh, Jay Ed, who's now a character in this storytelling today, last year, and we were laughing I actually went to visit him. They have a little farm in upstate New York, different spot. But I went to visit him before I taught at the Omega Institute, which was a big deal for me because I also grew up, you know, like looking at Omega Institute ads on the back of a crappy magazine, you know. And so for me to be invited to teach there was very sweet. But I went there before that because they're relatively close to each other. And we were laughing around the fire at how that year I was like, I don't know if it was because I was that age and I was like the perfect like picture of a young ingenue or something. I don't know. But I was 
in the most compositions, the most performances, like final performances than anyone else. <laughs> so I had my group, but then other groups had like stolen me to be in their final performances. And I had not remembered that. And so I'm like, wow, I was so brave. I can't believe I did that. So nothing happened. I mean, there were moments where I would like go to shower at the end of the day and maybe try to shave my legs and the pressure of a razor on my quad would be so sore I couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> so you're that kind of sore, like you can't walk up the stairs sore. But no, I think I think it's kind of always just been my nature. Nothing happened. I just wanted to be better. I mean, that's what I'm chewing on right now. It's like, oh, here I am thinking I'm doing a good job. Mm -mm, I can do more. I can do better. Like, give me a chance, you know. People, give me a chance, world. That's the vibe I'm rocking right now. Honestly, I came home and started going to the yoga studio because I was like, this will be a great thing for everything that I want to do right now. <laughs> Plus, I just felt comfortable in that space. My mom had already kind of really started to embrace like Baha'i faith. And, you know, there was a lot of new principles of loving that had been introduced into my home. And at that point it was just my mom and I living together. So I was, you know, full on Rumi gal before Rumi was ever questioned or got popular at the end of yoga classes. What year was this that you took your first yoga class? Well, I might've gone to class prior, but I started going right when I was like 17 and that same year. So after I went to the training, I enrolled in at St. Edwards and I enrolled in an early morning Kundalini class with the university. So I was like, might as well get credit for it. So I was doing both. So I was doing like Hatha at the studio, Kundalini in my freshman year of college, which was actually my senior year of high school. And my teacher there, Bagarit Crow, he was not just teaching Kundalini light. He was this is like such a great little bang for your buck time of my life. Like I swear my angels are good. You know, he wasn't just teaching alternate nostril breathing or like slap your face with water seven times and call it a day. One of our required reading wasn't just Shaktakar Kalsa's book, but it was also like the work of Byron Katie. Like here, and here's a discount if you want the tapes, which I did have the tapes, dude. And I played Byron Katie loving what is tapes in my clunker junker. Wow. With no air conditioner. With no AC. <laughs> so I guess the reason why I feel like these details are important I'm realizing now because I'm like, oh man, is I started to get insecure just talking about myself like this. But these are all interesting, I won't say important, because this was all happening before this was the way it is now, in that it wasn't popular, it wasn't a salvation, a mainstream salvation. <laughs> it wasn't even a modern tool bag yet, toolkit. You know, these were still dare I say, being treated more sacred. And I just like got into it. So then I was doing Kundalini and then the Hatha classes. Not long after that, 18 years old, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to do this yoga teacher training because they were promoting it at the studio. And the thing is, I love being in the classroom. That's the weird thing about leaving high school early is I've always loved school and I love learning. And to this day, I like being in this seat of the student. I like being in the classroom. And what was your mental state like at that time? I think I was hungry. My dark, darker days came a little later. But at this point, I had, I was just like really hungry. 
And, you know, I went off kilter later, but at this point I feel like I was pretty poised, you know, like I was a little hippie gal. And I say that lovingly, you know, I was just, I was a student. I was, I was, oh my God, I, you know, this was the first time I was reading, you know, it was like the first time I was enrolled in a philosophy and literature class. You know, I was just like, I was in a really potentially well-balanced state of like nerd art and artist and Austinite. <laughs> were you, were you like that young kid who was, who was learning all this new language for, you know, spiritual practices and going around and like coaching people unsolicited or, or were you just kind of hearing Byron Katie and all of these other things and just kind of keeping it for yourself and applying it to your own experience? Yeah, it was very private. It wasn't like I was hiding it, but only the people that were in my close circle would even know that I was jamming on that pretty hard. And I actually am really good friends with some of those people who can remember, you know, like Byron Katie being on the fridge. In fact, I used to have this funny little card. I don't know what it was, but, you know, as a little reminder, like it's, it was a Byron Katie thing. And it said something like, I hear what you're saying. Like that's what it said at the top. And then at the bottom it said, and no. (laughs) (laughs) And so that became like, you know, a joke. And (laughs) your friends would, would say that to you. They would tease you. Yeah. I have one friend in particular that I work closely with who, if he hears this, he's going to have a good giggle, but you know, I hear what you're saying and no. And even though we might have said it like joking, you know, it was going into our consciousness, you know, like these things and, oh yeah, that house at the time I had little Sufi poetry sayings up everywhere. I had quotes everywhere, positive affirmations, lots of Louise Hay. I was like a total Louise Hay kid. And it seems silly and you won't find that in my house now, but back then, I mean, yeah, it was seeping in because, I mean, I kept it up, kept those things up forever, but that was really my mom's influence. But for the most part, no, I wasn't really sharing that with anyone unless they came over and like read it on my fridge or in in my bathroom. It didn't come till much later that I started to have more of an experience with yoga specifically. Then I started to do that thing (laughs) that everyone does at one point where they're like, no, please try it. And you're like, no, I don't like, (laughs) I don't like onions or whatever. You're like, no, please try it. You can't even taste onions. Please, please try it. You're like, no, really, I can't even stand the smell. And you're like, please try it. It's so good. You know, I hit that phase a little later, closer to when I started the YouTube channel. So this was a yoga teacher training in Kundalini? No, so I, I chose the Hatha path because I'm still pragmatic mind <laughs> minded. And this is before yoga was popular like it is now, but I was like, you know, if I do Hatha, just, you know, I did like the research and I was like, I will be able to do more if I'm Hatha certified and then I can always go back and train in Kundalini. Or I can incorporate Kundalini into the Hatha, but this is like, this is the tree trunk. This is the like, just looking at the book list, you could tell like, okay, yeah, this is the wisest, most like comprehensive choice. And, and so that's what I did. And I could not afford, oh my goodness, I could not afford it. And it had to have been a lot less expensive then than it is now. But let me this tell you. This is in 2002, right? Or 2003? Yeah, 2002 is when I came back from Skidmore. So yeah, 2002, 2003. Trainings were about $2,000 back then. Because that's when I did mine was in 2002. 
Yeah. Well, and I had just come off this big month long training, which is the most expensive damn thing I had done to date, which, you know, my uncle Mike, like everyone chipped in, actually everyone. So I had a little <laughs> graduated early party, you know. Uh, I still graduated and I have to hand it to my parents too. You know, they held strong. They didn't say no for fear of what, you know, the family would think. Or I think they, I kind of get up feeling a little emotional all of a sudden thinking about it because that's proof that they believed that I was a smart, intelligent, capable young lady. And if they didn't, there's, I just think they would have not let me do. I wasn't that good at, at being stubborn, you know, like <laughs> I did what I wanted, but I was, it's not like I was, I don't know if I was that strong. Maybe they'd say something different. Like, no, you were going to do whatever you wanted to do either way. So I'm curious though, like why take a yoga teacher training as an actor? I mean, were you thinking I would just do this part-time and pay for my act, like subsidize my acting work? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a good, honest question for this time period too, because we just weren't seeing like oh, yeah, I could be a yoga teacher the way we are now. And I'm not saying that with any judgment. I'm just saying like, it just wasn't like, like the yoga teachers or a lot of them in my studio were still wearing, you know, turbans because it was a big Kundalini owned studio. So it's like, so that's a great question. And I think truly, truly it was that I moved out early and I wanted a little jump start in my life. And I also didn't live in the dorm. I didn't want to live in the dorm. So again, very blessed, very spoiled. But you know, we didn't have that much money. And I I like to be self-sufficient still, <laughs> big time to this day. And and that has really helped me out actually a lot as an entrepreneur too. But or, you know, just like having that deep down inside me somewhere. I I'm learning now in recent years how important it is to also collaborate, not just so I keep learning, but because I can't do everything myself. But I felt then that I didn't, you know, I didn't want to have to rely on anyone. I wanted to do things for myself. I had already been working a lot. And in fact, I started working really early for this exact same reason. Everything from working in the snow cone stand to working backstage to working in the costume shop as a cleaner as an organizer. I, w I cleaned houses for many years until I kept getting sick because of that. And also the owner of the company was like kind of a toxic dude. So I was like, mm, you know what? Peace. And then I, I did a lot of babysitting, a lot of nanny, nanny work. So I knew that I needed <laughs> to like get smart about how I was going to make money. And I say this with love, but just with honesty, like I just didn't want to work in the service industry. Like I just, that, that whole, you know, actors, waiting tables thing. I, I, don't, I honestly didn't think I'd be good at it too. It wasn't that I was just being, <laughs> and I wanted to be a teacher. You know, I always want, I always wanted to have a teaching voice because I had seen my mom, you know, my whole life use that voice. And the truth is, honest to God, truth is I was like strategically thinking this would be a great supplemental job to my acting career. <laughs> but I just, I thought I had that idea on my own, you know, like not that, that it would become an actual career. I also had studied American Sign Language in high school up until that point. So I, at this point, really, truly thought I could also be an interpreter because we have a big deaf culture here in Austin. We have the Texas School for the Deaf here, right in the center of the city. So that was still on the table. 
did you start teaching right away, right after your training was done? And if so, what was your first teaching experience? Or were you fish out of water or were you fish in water? <laughs> were you a natural? The thing is, I had so many things going on that were jazzing me. I mean, that's the thing is, I, I was never bored. And to this day, as I speak to you now, I'm, I'm in my house and I've been here for quite some time due to shelter in place in my city. And I'm just not bored. And again, this is one of those things, like if you're the type of person that gets bored, it's all good. Don't worry to each his own. But I have never been one of those people. So I was going to school. I was in plays. So I would do rehearsals. And then in like years to follow, I would like work in the mornings. I would nanny in the afternoons, go to classes, then also do plays. You know, it's just, there's so much going on that I started to get my foot in the door in like local theater outside of, you know, my mom's program and getting serious about being a performer, which led me to do some crazy, awesome things like a play that I developed with a company called Refraction Arts Project at the time. We took a show to New York Fringe Fest and that was my first mention in the New York Times was a picture of me dancing in the show about the myth, the Greek myth of Philomel, like this devastating story. But me going to New York Fringe with that show caused me to miss X amount of teacher training classes because they were only held on the weekends. But it just, you know, this was such a new offering, you know, if you missed base, I'm just going to do real talk. If you missed your anatomy class, like say one Saturday, August 4th, you had to wait till like the next August 4th to get that anatomy class, you know, and maybe not the whole year, but it wasn't like, oh, you'll just pick up in the next training or, oh, we'll just like send you a PDF and you just do this and then you can meet your teacher. And no, it was like, if you weren't there for anatomy three on August 4th, then you're going to need to wait until we offer Anatomy 3 again, which will be next year. And probably like you're going to have to pay $25 or something. (laughs) So that was a really long, hopefully fun, just kidding, way of saying, you know, I had so much going on that my teacher training was almost like my side hustle, you know? (laughs) And like people knew that I had this side hustle and I think they respected it and thought it was cool. but. I, I feel like I went to yoga university because I, I didn't, I wasn't like in and out in a year. Like it was almost four years, almost four years just for a 200 hour dude. And, you know, now of course I've had the opportunity to do continued education and all, all of my amazing things that I would have never at the time thought that I could ever afford. So no shame, four years. And in a lot of ways, again, not to sound annoying, but you know, thank you, angels. I think it was a blessing in disguise, no doubt, that my training was was pulled wide like a long piece of taffy so that I could grow up a little bit within that training and, and within that experience so that, yes, when I was done, I was so ready. Had you latched teach- on to a certain teacher as a mentor, to yoga teacher that is, as a mentor, And if so, did you have a plan for how you were going to teach yoga afterwards? Yeah. Well, you go through the training and originally I'm just looking at paper, you know, like, okay, check, 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 ooh, check. And you know what's crazy? I've, I've shared this before in public, but I think you might get a kick out of this. It was so different back then. Do you remember like if you were a coffee drinker or, you know, I'm like an 18 year old, I'm like, 
I was a strict vegan back then. Like I didn't drink, I didn't do anything that was considered impure or toxic to the body. Oh, because of your environment though, right? Because that was like kind of the rule. Not that, not because that wasn't inside you, but there's Benji. For me, it was just so interesting because if I had a coffee, I would leave it and I wasn't done, but I spent like precious $3 on it. I would still leave it in the car before I went in the studio because that just wasn't part of the yogic way, you know? Like that wasn't, you didn't bring your coffee into the studio. If you did, you were like a bad yogi or something. That's kind of a a silly example, but those examples existed within the fabric of this experience is all I'm trying to say. And part of what I've done sometimes on purpose and sometimes just subconsciously is trying to demystify a lot of those things that don't make you feel welcome (laughs) in this environment that's supposed to be for you to bring your difficulty and just bring yourself and bring, you know, so anyway, so I was checking boxes is what I'm saying. Cause I just wasn't, I was nervous and I got to the box basically like you need to have uh, someone you can mentor with. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh damn, that's going to be a harder box to check, you know, than like this and this. And you wanted to find a mentor because they wanted you to, of course, create a relationship with someone that where you could ask questions, beautiful, where you can observe. Yes. So important. And also eventually to assistant teach you practice, you know, but at this point, I had been treated like an adult for some time. I had a relationship to what authenticity felt like, even though I didn't know how to name it back then. And I just couldn't find anyone, you know? I was just like, ooh, I don't, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. And then one day, I was just like, well, we're just going to get to that box whenever because I still have other shit I can be doing, you know, like in my binder while I'm doing plays in school and, and you know. And one day I took one class with this woman, Brigitte, and she read the guest house at the end of, of class. You know, we didn't have social media or, you know, so, so for me, it was like, a, I know this moment, you know, and not to mention, you know, it's a beautiful piece of writing, but yeah, I had a, I had a release. I mean, I don't know if that's the exact moment, but I definitely cried tears of joy in that moment. And I was like, I don't know this woman. I'm scared, but I'm going to ask her because <laughs> I know, I know now. And just the way she moved and the way she carried herself and the way also her voice, like the way she used her voice. And it was just so different. And so I just went right up to her after class. I think I was shaking. Uh, I know I was shaking. And I asked her. And this was a big moment as well because I think there was a reason that I couldn't find my mentor there in that studio space. And she ended up, that teacher invited me over to another place in town. (laughs) Yeah. On the other side of the tracks. No, just kidding. And it was called Healing and Yoga. Her partner at the time was also, they were kind of running it together. His name is Murti Hauer and he became a big teacher and influence. And it's funny because I didn't actually spend that much time with these people. I mean, I spent a huge chunk of time in in a very porous part of my life, but in the grand scheme, it's funny because, you know, they're, they're both in Hawaii now, but I've actually just exchanged with Murti recently. And I would have never in a million years thought I would be doing what I'm doing now, one, but two, to be able to look back and say, thank you. And to make people who believed in you proud is a, is a big deal. But 
they both welcomed me into the community there. And and some of our most quote, you know, senior teachers, like the teachers here in Austin that have been around a long time, some of them I met there, you know, they were um, a bit further along in their journey than me as a teacher, of course. But once again, like I'm like in this time, I'm in this space at the right time as a young person fly on the wall, like too young to be there. And when a spot opened up for kids yoga teacher, there were all of these other, you know, people in line in the community that should have received that job. And they gave it to me. And you can ask my mom, there were even people in the community that were like, what? (laughs) And I did that with so much pure devotion for many years. And that's, that's really kind of where I, I fell in love with the idea of, of using the calling of a yoga teacher to help others. How many classes did they give you per week? On Saturday mornings is when Murti, the, you know, the, you know, the big teachers would teach sat- Saturday morning. I'll never forget when I first started teaching Saturday morning, I was like, oh, wow, I've made it, you know? <laughs> and then I was like, get me out of here. No, just kidding. But yeah, he taught on Saturdays. And so I was going to do the kids yoga class while he was teaching so that, you know, the kids, the parents could go to class with Murti, the kids would come with me. And they wouldn't do yoga the full time as the adult class. So we would, there's a little playground. We do a little gathering time. Then we do yoga. And then I do like a story and a snack afterwards. And the snack was all me, dude. Like I brought that. I paid for it. I went to Whole Foods. I bought it. You know, like I did this for many, many years of my early days of teaching and in in a way still now. How did you know how to teach (laughs) children? Because you don't typically learn how to teach kids on a yoga teacher training. No, you don't. And I taught myself through books. And the thing is, we didn't have video. We did not have video. There were no videos. There were no videos. So books, I remember getting books from uh, like a half price bookstore. I didn't even have Amazon, nor did I have any money to get anything ordered from the internet anyway. So it was really like, you know, I had the internet, but I was really creating like my own lessons and taking stuff like for my mom. I I was just like doing my own thing there. And I think that that was a huge, like that was my first business was Love Kids Yoga. That was my first DBA, you know, that I went and got. And I remember I had one of my students who ended up being the younger sister of of a a fellow I dated for many years. It was kind of just fun little connection. She did the logo for Love Kids Yoga, but that was really my first business. And so I would do that on Saturday mornings even if I was up late Friday night, which I most certainly was doing rehearsals and having a Jameson or whatever after rehearsals to wind down, I was still up there with my bag and with everything working on Saturday mornings. And then on Sunday mornings, that's when Brigitte would teach and I would also show up, same same thing, and I would work the table and I would like pull out all the mats and sweep the floor and so I had no money, but that was my trade is I was making some money on the kids yoga. And then on Sundays, I would work the table and then get to practice for free. And I was allowed to lay my mat out in the back before, and then I would check everyone in. And at the last moment, you know, I'd probably usually always miss the tune in, but I would just slide in. And so then I was practicing with my teacher and I don't need a cookie or like a pat on the back, but in the spirit of like, telling the down and dirty stuff and and not just like sharing the highlights. You know, this sounds like a great deal, 
But at the time, it was hard because I was living in the nightlife and I was getting up and making this a priority. Well, I mean, basically, I didn't want to let anyone down. I knew that I'd been given a great opportunity. And, you know, the practice was changing me too. So it wasn't just about getting somewhere. I was feeling something, you know, I was, I was having my own experience though, that I was investigating. What did you learn from teaching kids? What were some of the lessons that you learned? I think I learned a lot about the power of invitation versus kind of like dictation and uh, not dictation, but you know what I mean? Uh, the art really of inviting someone to do something versus telling them what they should be doing. That's so important with children and it's so important with adults. <laughs> I think along those same lines, I think the power of story and threading like a, be a clear beginning, middle and end and letting that be something that feels playful and creative. I think that is a big part of what I am doing now still that, that is different than kind of how we're trained to teach but ultimately, it gave me a chance to find my voice in a non-threatening environment and to really move from a place of, of love, which I know that sounds like, you know, slip service these days, but it, it's so true. These were, I was having a heartfelt experience every single time, you know? <laughs> and even when it was hard, it was my job to make it beautiful, to make it fun anyway, even when somebody's having a, a struggle or, or to, to get, uh, you know, I wanted those kids to go back to their parents and, and say they want to come back. And in a lot of ways I do that now with yoga theater. And I'm like, look, I'm not your guru, but I am here to try to coerce you to come back to yourself, really. And did you ultimately get to teach adult classes? And if so, what would, would you find that you enjoyed the most? Right. So then from working and just being in the community, and I think that was the real outside of the fact that my whole life, you know, the rehearsal room and being in a play and being in an ensemble, like I know what it's like to be in a company, you know, it's special. That's why when people are always like, oh yeah, only child, I'm like, hey, don't, don't be so quick to like throw me into your only child zone, even though I do it to myself too, like sometimes just be funny. But I've always felt like I've had a lot of brothers and sisters, like growing up with my mom's students and just being in, in companies. And, and, you know, I'm sure people who grew up on teams, you know, sports teams, they, they have that with that part of their story or that, that experience. But that healing and yoga time, that was the first time I was introduced to being in a kula, you know, like being with a community of people that would not maybe normally gather for like the same movie or the same, you know, vote the same way or even shop at the same grocery store. Like it was, it was cool. It was like the first time I was in something different where, you know, not everyone maybe thought the same. So that was my first taste of Kula. And I really found my voice there. And there were people I think that saw something in me trying to be brave and not play small and tell this story right, you know, but I think there were people there that saw things in me outside of Brigitte and Murti. And so there was a woman there who, you know, she had trusted me with her children, her babies, you know, for so long. And they had such a nice experience with me that when she opened up a studio, 
oh my gosh, I'm just actually called at the time Austin Kula Yoga. It's, it's not that anymore, but I was invited to come teach the kids. And again, though, it was just still the kids. And then I started getting real. I started doing toddler classes. I started doing mommy and baby. I did, if it had anything to do with kids yoga in Austin, Texas in that era, like it was mine. I was all over the place. And then from there, I started going to other different studios because the studios were like, oh yeah, that's genius. We can have a kid's class while we have this class or we can have a toddler's class while we have this class. So I would say the whole first portion of my teaching career was with babies, toddlers, and kids, and then later on teens. So I was still working with kids, still praying someone would see me as a real yoga teacher. No, excuse me. You know, but that's how my mindset was at the time. That's not what I'm saying now. But I was like, please, God, let me get a real teaching gig. But I was into it because I was growing something. But in the meantime, I started working for an after-school program called Creativity Club. So then I started teaching creative drama to kids. So now I'm doing kids yoga and creative drama. And we're talking like four years, again, another university setting of teaching kids yoga and performance. And from there, I ended up moving to a private high school where I taught theater arts for a bit. And I co-taught a musical performance there and then yoga. But it wasn't until I guess I was 25 that I really was like, I, I, I was doing some adult classes and just different angels started giving me opportunities. Like I got my first adult class at this co-op, but I had to pay for the space. And at that time, like, like only my mom and my boyfriend at the time, and then maybe one other person would come. And that one other person, I had told them to come for free. So then I was just paying to teach for many years. And that wasn't like one time just for people who are working their way through. That was like a good year where I was like, oh my God, it was like my dirty little secret. Like I'm just paying to teach and whoever does the books here, I hope they don't think I'm just like a total idiot. And what about Um, the acting? Are you still thinking I'm going to be, I'm going to do full-time acting one day and just still doing this part-time or or where is it now in terms of your focus? I'm still acting at this point and I'm doing it nonstop. Like I am doing back-to-back plays, like in rehearsal for a play while I'm in a run of a show for another play. And that's a similar story. You know, I got my foot in the door through professional Austin theater community as an assistant stage manager, one of my good friends and, and collaborators. And to this day, she's one of my favorite actors, Jenny Larson, who ended up becoming a big confidant and collaborator for me later on in in yoga with Adrian when I started teaching at Salvage Vanguard Theater, but still doing plays this whole time. She got me my first gig early 20s with uh, Salvage Vanguard Theater, which I later became a company member at. And that's where I started like doing my independent classes. So it kind of took a full circle thing, but to make this not so much more long-winded, I'll say I was like Cinderella when my friends got to be like, performing for many years. I was doing the laundry. I was making blood packets. You know, I was getting everything ready for them. And it wasn't until a little later on that I started to get hired. But then once I started to get hired, I I was nonstop working. I don't say that like (laughs) with a hair flick or anything, but I was, you know, I was a hard worker. Who, Who the hell wouldn't want me there? I was extremely hardworking and probably psychotically devoted to (laughs) the theater. 
But were you uh, making was, money as an actor at that point or were you still yeah. mostly work free? I was living that starving artist life. I was piecing it all together. No, I was, I was definitely getting paid. I wasn't doing any of that for free. There were definitely moments where I'd like to think I helped teach, guide, move some of that, even in the smallest ways. Like, for example, I can think of someone that I totally worship now as a director, but I remember when he first came to Austin and had this incredible piece that had my name all over it. There was like no pay. And I was like, Oh, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And then it was like, okay, a hundred dollars. And I was like six weeks of Shakespearean work. We're like, no, you know, and then this is like when rent starting to, to get higher and, you know, it's all starting is the beginning of what I've now lived through as the end of, of a huge downfall of arts and in particular the theater spaces in my hometown. But yeah, yeah, no, I was definitely getting paid. I was piecing it all together. And then a really pivotal moment came when I was invited to become a company member at Salvage Vanguard and a beautiful teacher had already been kind of utilizing that space. A friend of ours who's actually a teacher at the studio here in Austin that I'm co-owner at now. Anyway, um, opportunity came up for me to start teaching in the lobby there. So we're talking like the theater lobby. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'll take it. How much do I pay each month? Okay, that's like way better than what I've been paying anywhere else. So let's do it. I just took it and ran with it. And and from there, I started teaching at the Blanton Museum of Art. So then instead of traveling all around town to like subclasses or pay to teach at the co-op or do kids classes, all of a sudden I was creating these opportunities for myself to teach. But more importantly, I was attracting people who wouldn't normally feel comfortable going to the studio or the gym, even the YMCA, not even the the, the fancy or the fancy <laughs> gym. So that happened organically just by the very nature of where I was posting up, basically. Talk about Spider Baby, because I'm assuming that happened around this time, right? No! <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I don't normally love this word, but this is a circumstance in which it is to me very appropriate. I was hustling. I was hustling, doing all the things. And it's true. I mean, there's a reason why I don't like that word now. It's probably because of what I have been through and how I used to actually romanticize the hustle, you know, like big time. Like I thought that was, that's a thing. Starving artist was like, you're busting every part of your being, but you're making not enough money to get by, <laughs> but you're an artist. So, so there came a point I was teaching at the high school. I was nannying for a dear friend of mine, a baby. And then I was nannying for an Indian family after school, which taught me, they taught me a lot how to cook for myself it also just was like, it slowed me down a little bit to be able to, to take care of their girls and even contribute around their house and just slow down my own pace before going back to rehearsal. That was, that was an important part of, of that time for me. But I started to, you know, I started to get a little more confident. I started to get some positive feedback. I was, I was getting some recognition, which is hard for me to accept, but in retrospect, really beautiful and something that I'm proud of. So I was like, well, maybe I need to take this to where there's a little more money. <laughs> so I started auditioning for commercials and for films. 
and I was booking a lot of commercials and I started doing voiceover work, which I still do now. So I started to become immersed in the Austin film scene and I was invited to audition for this indie horror film about three girls who are in a band, a punk rock band, and it's about their experience basically through an ap- apocalypse. And I can't remember why originally, but I had passed on it. And then when it circled back to me, it came back to me through friends instead of like the agent. And the friends that it came through, they were like people that I really loved and thought were talented and super smart and super cool. So I was like, hmm, maybe I should give this another try. And it was for a lead. It was for one of the principal roles. So I went on tape. Uh, I think I, I don't know if it was live stream or if I did it on tape. But with my now business partner who was directing and he co-wrote it and his now wife, Hyla was one of the other, the gal, one of the other principal ladies. And she and I at that point had done theater together. And, you know, some people you just, you know, you, you let them see you, they let you see them and you just know. So at that point I had already a, a kindred energy with Hyla and I I thought she was really cool too. So I was like, yeah, let's do this. And I got cast and it was actually a really difficult experience in many ways. But I think that I learned so much about film acting on the piece and it never got finished due to a bit of discrepancy, miscommunication. I don't even know, to be honest, between kind of the Austin team and, and the producer But yeah, I think we often high five, toast, cheers to the spider babies because from that project, you know, Chris and Hyla met and they have a beautiful son now and we have yoga with Adrian. You're hustling. You're doing all these different jobs. Are you living kind of hand to mouth? Are you saving money for a certain thing? Um, What's your like financial state at that time? Check to check for sure. And this is personal, but you know, my parents were good to me. They, they helped me out through the beginning stages there, but I think it was me, not them. That was like, I really wanted to be self-sufficient as soon as humanly possible. So that's what I did. And if I was in a really tight pickle, most of the time, most of the time I would work it out myself most of the time. And then, you know, life happens and things evolve and and we got to a point where <laughs> it was every man for himself. <laughs> like, oh, like my mom and my dad and I all kind of, you know, you good? Okay, you good? Okay, you good? But I was definitely working check to check and but I was in scenarios that were really blessed. Like I would I was I, I nannied after school for a family and a lot of what I did during my 20s, I look back on it and I'm like, wow, people trusted me like big time, like with their everything, you know, keys to the costume shop, keys to the house, like folding laundry and putting it in drawers, like just, you know, like, oh, and, and I, I did another nanny job too with a dear friend of mine where I'm thinking not only do people trust me with the keys to their home, but they trust me with their home and with the things they leave out metaphorically and literally, you know, like it's just, it's really interesting that all of my jobs seem to have this, like, I had a lot of keys, basically. I had a lot of keys on my keychain. (laughs) So I think the reason I bring that up 
is not to brag, but to say I was already creating like relationship based work versus just like transactional, like show up for your shift, do it and leave. Like I was so, so within that comes some cool things. Like you get fed, like I would like, you know, like the food that I would do mise en place for Poe, Poe Ruby, you know, so she could come home after work and, and cook her meal you know, she would leave for me and like with instructions. And then I would know how to make this Indian dish. And throughout the course of me working with them, I, I like grew my Indian kitchen every holiday. They would give me one, you know, like one year I had a pressure cooker, which was like big deal for my broke butt back then. And, and then the Christmas I got my own Indian spice racks, spice dish, or so I was, I was being taken care of in interesting ways during this time, but very much check to check. And Spider Babies was actually very alluring, alluring because it was because of the relationship that Chris had made with this producer, I was going to get paid. There was some money to pay the principal actors. So that was a big part of why I was like, oh yes, finally. But yeah, I was doing too much for sure. And this is where I started to ha- fall off the rails a little bit, to be honest, like, because I had an inkling that I wanted to be true to myself and that I wanted to be of service. I felt this calling of like a yoga teacher to help others. I felt this calling to use my life as an artist to help others. But I was still like in my twenties, like navigating the world and, and there's only so many hours in the day. And so I was like, okay, well, like once you have your first Red Bull, you're like, absolutely not. I'm like a very clean person. My mom you know, I grew up healthy. Like once you have your first Red Bull and you're like, oh, the show was a lot better tonight after I had that Red Bull. Damn, damn it. That's so gross. Oh, I can't believe you drink those things. Here, give me one. You know, like just starting, things started to get a little rickety, you know? And I'm not saying that I flew off the rails then because that happened later. Just kidding. (laughs) But I was definitely, I started to struggle a little bit. Like how could I be a school teacher, a nanny, a professional artist, a, fil- a film actor, like how could you do all that and also still not even be able to make the rent? So things started to get a little interesting. And that is why when Chris wrote me a random email about gauging my interest in doing a YouTube channel, I lit up like, ooh, what? This could be cool because I was I was hustling. I was also... I was teaching adults at this time and I was teaching all over town and not making any money. And I was using my classes at the theater to like try to creatively get people to come, but most of them were coming for free. Had Chris taken your class and that's, he he thought you were an exceptional teacher or something? No, I'm fairly certain that it was the fact that I was at this point, I was that person that was like, come to you. I was like, I had Facebook at this point, fine at that point. And I was like posting anything I could think of to get people to come check it out. I was, I was doing it and I was trying to be creative and fun. And I would do that thing like free kombucha or like, I remember once seeing a Facebook memory where I was like, wow, Adrian, wow. Where it was like today, was Shirley Temple's birthday. Come to yoga and get a free healthy Shirley Temple after class. So I was like, but in a way that was like the kid's yoga teacher in me, right? Like the creative drama teacher, like this just, it came from a sweet place. But what was really happening is, or like Valentine's or like self-love, you know, free rose. If you come to class, 
the problem was I was buying all those roses and I was buying all those cherries and I was buying everything that I was giving away at yoga <laughs> that no one was paying. But then people started to donate at Salvage Vanguard. And yeah, he, I think he knew that I was comfortable on camera. I think, I don't want to say he was impressed, <laughs> but I think he was, I think he had a lot of respect for me and the way that I worked on that film anyway. And we, I mean, the bottom line was we enjoyed working together. You know, you, when you know, you know, that's true. So I think it was more that he knew I was passionate about what was, what was his pitch? Hey, we're going to well, just his, do this thing starting next week or think about it or what? Yeah. I think it was like, he was just trying to take my pulse. So he had created a cooking show with Hyla called Hyla cooking that ended up doing really well and was really fun and was positioned like, this is not for chefs. This is just for everyday people who want to have a little fun and be able to cook their own meals for themselves and their family. And Hyla has a wonderful personality. And I think the two of them had so much fun building it that that really ended up coming out in the videos. And so it did really well. And I think, again, when you I say can't it did really well. You mean it was making, it was earning income for them? That was how they were paying for things? Well, at first it didn't make any money, but you know, it started to become a thing. For one, people were watching it. So I think, again, I can't really speak for Chris, but I think it was his experience with Hyla cooking coupled with where he was, honest to God, just in that time, like the movie didn't make, he had put everything into the movie and, you know, I don't think he wanted to go back to an office job, even though he ended up doing that for quite some time. And yeah, I think he was just exploring and I, I and I honestly think he was interested. It wasn't just like, make money, even though we needed to make money. It was like YouTube was changing. And at, at, at that time, it was already starting to to thrive and move in different ways in other big cities, but not quite in Austin yet. So Chris was really getting into that. And I think he was, you know, just good at it and, and inquisitive enough to get feedback that was like, yeah, let's keep doing this. So he wanted to do something in health and wellness, knew that I was comfortable on camera, knew that I was really trying to do something with this this yoga thing. Cause at that point, everyone who knew me knew that I was teaching. So we talked about it for, we like to joke. We talked about it for like two years <laughs> back and forth, uh, just, you know, in passing before we actually started to make some moves. Here's the problem though, is back then YouTube is relatively newish. Yoga. It's like, I'm, I can imagine as a yoga teacher, you were probably like, well, what about alignment? How do I keep people safe? And, you know, the whole thing of taking this quote unquote sacred art and introducing it to video, was that a conflict of yours at all? Or, or am I just projecting? No, it's a big one. And I'll, I'll even, I'll put another little dollop of that on top and be honest and say like, not only was that a real problem for me, I was afraid to mess up because I was afraid of doing something wrong. I felt like I could maybe jam this out. Like it was kind of just too good of an opportunity to not try, but I could see like in the back of my head, like, Oh, like my teachers, you know, or like just everyone in yoga looking at me thinking that she's watering it down. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> I'm not because also, and here's the down and dirty is I admit, I like, especially back then. Whew, I mean, and this is something that I'm actually investigating right now for real. Like when is my, desire to want to be liked getting in the way of actually creating a new groove 
whether the groove were, is good or bad, we're not even getting that far. Like when is my desire to want to be like getting in the way of me creating a new groove period. And this was one of those moments where I was like, Hmm, you know, I even had someone recently ask me like, were you a teacher's pet? And I was like, what? I got all defensive. And then, and then I started thinking about that a couple of days after. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of am. Like, even right now I'm taking Spanish, you know, through online one-on-one and I love my profesora and I want to make her proud. You know, like I don't want to show up unfocused or frazzled. I want to do well for the both of us. You know, <laughs> like, so it's still in me, but I felt like I was walking on eggshells, to be honest, for a long, long, long time. And I think that's why I went a little overboard <laughs> in the beginning. He sent you the email. You've been talking about it. What eventually got you to the point where you're like, okay, we're doing it on Saturday at 10 o'clock, come to my house and shoot it? I think it was just where we both were in our lives. Like I had no no space when the email came through and he was also kind of starting a new chapter, so to speak. And so I think it just took us that long for the stars to align, honestly, for us to get together. But maybe too in the back of my head, like maybe it was just that we were going to let it gestate. But but here's the thing. This is actually key. We never were thinking that it was going to be a business or anything. Like, let's start. Okay. So we need to have a meeting to like plan out how we're going to do this business. You know, like it was more like, hey, should we finally meet up? And we had a drink. And our first yoga with Adrian meeting, we had a beverage at a bar on South Lamar in Austin, just like well, main road, you know, like because Chris lived over there at the time, like what, you know, so I, but I like that. I like to share that part of the story. I don't even think it's funny. I just think it's interesting. You know, like we weren't meeting like, okay, let's, let's change the way we see yoga and health and wellness or like, let's, let's, you know, I thought maybe I could pay some of my flip phone bill, you know, maybe. So it really was in the spirit of like experimentation and there was a ton of unknowns and no real pressure at all. There was nothing like speeding it up or pushing it along so much so that for the first year or two, even if we said we were going to shoot on a Saturday and one of us didn't feel like it, we just called the person up and said, Hey, do you mind if we save it? shoot next weekend. And that's what we did. <laughs> what was the setup like? So the first time he just came over with like a little point and shoot or it was an actual film camera or what? Well, it's interesting. I actually lived in another house when his first email came through. And in that process between when I received his inquiry and when we began, I moved to a new house. So when I moved into the new house, I walked into this dining room and saw this beautiful window wall with the, these like old school built-in benches and it was an old house, you know, but I was like, this is it. <laughs> I was like, we could shoot the yoga videos in here. You know, if we ever do that thing, you know, whatever. But I was like, we could do it in here. I'm going to be honest in the early days. It was, we had a little bit of a Dharma and Greg thing going, you know, like, okay, I'm in charge of all the yoga, like all the content, I guess, but we didn't even call it content then. It's funny. And you're in charge of all the other stuff, <laughs> the tech, the camera, like, and we worked like that in the beginning really well. 
you know, we were just playing and exploring, but I think it took a lot of trust. And honestly, you know, maybe we're just cosmically a good team because we had fun. And, you know, Chris is a smart guy. He said early on, you know, we don't have to try to make everything like perfect, but rather just be yourself. Like, let's just work with what we have. And, and then kind of strategically, I remember him saying each time, let's just try to make one thing better, which is something that I've passed on when I, you know, people ask me for advice and I'm like, Oh, I don't know if you want my advice, but uh, let's see. And I, I like to share that, you know, it can be overwhelming and you can also think that you need all the like fancy stuff to make meaningful work, but really you don't. And a better way to approach it sometimes is just like, okay, what's one thing we can make better. Sometimes it's like me, like stop smacking or keep eye contact or be yourself. Stop trying to act like a yoga teacher. And then sometimes it's like camera movement or light. Thank God we had all the windows. We had a lot of natural light. And then we had two little like soft boxes that were, you know, basically high-low cooking. Everything was high-low cooking equipment. So that was great. But we had pretty much just bare bone basics. You know, even my yoga clothes, like I had like two pairs of pants that were okay because the other ones had a hole in the crotch. You know, like that's what it was like. And I remember doing my makeup, like in my bathroom a little bit, combing my hair, looking at my journal, my notes. I took copious amounts of notes back then, trying to basically memorize them, kind of simulating like what I would do in, in a performance. But then something started to happen in which, you know, Chris, I think, started to get really interested in the yoga and the meaning, you know, behind it. Then I started to get interested in what he was doing. One thing I'm always, to this day, I feel so grateful that my angels paired me up with Chris because Chris has always gone out of his way to teach me. There's always been a transparency both ways, you know, in why I'm doing this this is why I'm doing it this way. And then I'll do the same thing on my end. This is why we're doing this today instead of a flow, because I want to make sure we have all the foundations before we get into that like bootylicious stuff, you know, whatever. <laughs> so we really taught each other a lot along the way and still do. What was the engagement like when you guys first started? Did you film a bunch of episodes first and then you started putting them out or did you just put them out one after the other one as soon as you were done filming? Yeah, we made an intro video with Hyla as our third man, third woman. And I was so nervous. It was so crazy because I felt so vulnerable. And that's no joke. That's that's like, I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And you can see it in the very, very, very first Yoga with Adrian video uploaded September 2012. I mean, I, I look at that person and I'm just like, I, what would I see that? Like, it's sweet. That's the one thing is it's very sweet. It's very pure, you know, and I'm like, hi, what's up? I'm, I'm Adrian Mishler. I'm an Austinite. I'm an actor and um, yoga teacher and dog owner. And you see my old dog there. And it's just, it's very pure. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I thought like something would happen, but then nothing really happened. <laughs> I was just like, we did it. And then we started doing the yoga and at the time we were doing one at a time. And like I said, if we did reschedule, we would reschedule enough to still do it so we could put out one at a time. And then it got to be like, okay, maybe two at a time. I can't honestly believe to this day that we would do one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even. It's like oh. shooting a movie in sequence, right? It's, it's like, yeah. Wow. yeah, no kidding. But to answer your question, nobody watched 
or engaged at all for a long time. In fact, this is why I don't know who I think I am, but I often do feel like the darn thing is is blessed or guided by angels or like so much bigger than me because why were we even doing that? I mean, I guess Chris Hat was working on things and I'm just like, I'm not a failure. So I keep going. I'm going to keep going. But we were doing it for so long before receiving any feedback or any views. And then I'll never forget the day where I like popped back on a video and was like, oh my word, 100 views. And it was like the floor just, it was amazing. And I'm still not really a big number person. We've had quite the year this year with numbers, but I didn't check in with like views all that often throughout the course of the journey. I know it sounds like I'm just saying that and I don't know why I wouldn't just be like addicted to it. It's my thing. It's me. It's like me putting myself out there, but I don't know. I just don't really care, I guess. But I did start to care. Basically, we started to really see some movement and I started to get more engaged when we did the first 30-day yoga journey. And I think it's not that I all of a sudden woke up excited about the numbers and that they were bigger, but I started to see a new possibility. I started to see like return guests, return, you know, friends. What year was the first one in 2014? 15. That was the same year you were the most searched, biggest Google search from yoga? Yeah. And I think that was due to the 30 days of yoga, which is wild to think about because the channel was so small. Now, Chris was also the Wizard of Oz, right? Wasn't he like working all the meta tags and the... <laughs> And all of the algorithm stuff, that's SEO stuff in the background. 100%. I love the way you put things. And this is a good example. In all my days, I've never thought of Chris as a Wizard of Oz, especially during that time. And that is the most perfect way of describing him. And, you know, in the moment, it was like that was actually, we're not supposed to talk about that, right? Just do the work because we really wanted all of that to be invisible, and and still do now, you know, like that's not the focus. You know, I got to a point where I basically started talking about Chris in every interview because it just felt wrong. But in the beginning, it was like, yeah, we were really positioning it as like, just a gal in my living room. Let's do some yoga for free. You don't have to have anything fancy. You don't have to have tight yoga pants. You don't even have to like yourself. <laughs> you are welcome here. Just come along. Would you say you had found your yoga teaching voice by that point or did, were you still developing it. I had found a voice. I think it was and is in development. And it, I know that sounds like I'm just trying to, uh, again, check the box and, and say the right answer. But I mean that. And again, this has been coming up for me a lot lately for many reasons. One being that our audience has really grown during the year 2020 for obvious reasons. But two, the world is changing and it always has been, but there's a unique window right now that I'm looking through and it's inviting me to kind of look at just the way that I'm using my voice, even in, in just the asana led practice, you know, because asana is so powerful the way, way we teach asanas. Well, but I know why you're asking me that. Yeah. I, I had found a voice then. And I honestly, it was like a sink or swim scenario. My friend, it was like, how do you be yourself, but also gain the trust of the friend on the other end, the viewer, you know? So I was just giving it my best shot. I wanted to prove that I 
was worthy of holding space. And and honestly, I knew, I, the thing is, I did know a lot. Like I'm a total nerd. Like I like to be prepared, you know, like that has never changed. But I also had already experienced classes with people where the teachers seemed to be taking a little bit more than they were giving inadvertently. And I got to the point where I would like shiver Like when I would hear a yoga teacher, like just try to spout their knowledge off. So I was finding it, but yeah, I was definitely, I was having to act confident even when I didn't feel confident to figure out what worked and, and, and what worked, meaning what felt good and honest to me, not like what got good feedback. What was the moment where you felt like, wow, this is really, this could be my everything. I mean, I'm, I'm still going to act, but I, I can really take this thing to another level. What was that moment like? Well, I think I realized pretty early on when we did, so before we did the 30-day yoga journey, we actually experimented with a little program called Reboot. And it was a 29-day yoga journey, but it was only four videos. And the idea was that you did the same video every day for a week, for four weeks. And because repetition is one of the big elements of my previous training that we spoke about, I use that, you know, like the repetition to kind of guide the program, which is called Reboot. And, you know, we shot it in my, one of my best friends, like studio for free. I hired a buddy. I don't even know if we paid him. If we didn't, we should have, we always pay people. Just kidding. I'm sure we paid him, but very homemade is the point. Even the, the sound design, I did it all on. Chris's computer back in Chris and Hyla's back room. And I used all like Austin, Texas artists. And like, I literally sound designed it. Like, like I didn't just, I like swelled with like inhale, reach for the sky. I like, you know, hours and hours and hours of tedious work. And same with Chris, like we didn't know how to sell a program or build a website or do any of that. So he was like teaching, we were learning, we were teaching ourselves it as we were going along. And while we were teaching ourselves this, we did something that we never have done ever again, but we started to sell it before <laughs> before it was done. And we had the content. I don't, not, neither one of us would be that silly, but you know, it wasn't finished and people started to join. And, and the thing is at the very last minute, I got scared because my whole thing, which we haven't really even spoken to, but I don't think we need to, but the whole thing that really was the pivotal shift was that things were changing, not on YouTube only, but outside. So yoga classes were jumping from 10 bucks, eight bucks, 10 bucks to 17, 24. And I'm going to say it. I always have said it. There's no reason why I would stop saying this now. And the culture of yogis were really predominantly like wealthy white women in expensive, stretchy pants. And that was just like blatant. And I was like, this sucks because I'm like devoted to this and I can't afford to go to class. And now it's like being infiltrated by, I mean, I felt it. I was there at that time. I was sweeping and scrubbing floors just to take class on my side of town, which is East Austin. So that was starting a shift, which caused me to feel nervous about charging for a program. And at the very last minute, Chris and I were like, okay, we're going to add this calendar. We're going to add this. Uh, maybe we'll do a, should we do like an opportunity to like join a Facebook group so people can like talk about it and then we'll just like close it down when it's done. And it was just like an afterthought 
because that wasn't that thing that was happening. That's the thing. I'm not trying to say to like, we are the, we started this, but it just wasn't a thing that we just weren't seeing it. So we had nothing to compare it to, I guess all I'm saying. And that, that my friend, that group, we call that group to this day, uh, founding members, the FWFG founding members. Find what feels good. Yeah. Find what feels good. Founding members. It, at that time it was called reboot 29 day yoga experience, you know, but because that was the thing, that was the, the thing that really changed it all for me. And that was the fact that I was starting to engage with people all over the world and witness them engage and be vulnerable. And I don't know, it just, at, coming from an artist background, it was like, oh my God, we're having conversations. Like we're not just doing yoga. It's like a talk back after a, a show. It's like you can actually engage with the audience. Yes. And that was cool because it was like, I had this kind of like, okay, like focusing on ways to be more inclusive. I had this whole high going, but then when we did that, it was like things started to percolate in a different way. I don't know. I don't, and I know I'm like over talking all of this already, but, but that, that was cool. And it was cool to see the diversity in the room and, and, and to get like a positive feedback of like, you can say everyone's invited all you want. You know, you can say, oh yeah, yoga for all, but you know, you got to take it to them and get people to talk. And this is something that's coming up a lot right now for obvious reasons. That was kind of when everything changed. And we ended up naming that group, Find What Feels Good Founding Members and creating a Facebook group for Yoga with Adrian that ended up becoming so big and so beautiful that it became unmanageable. And so now we have our own social media site called Find What Feels Good Kula, K-U-L-A community of the heart. And we were working with Mighty Networks for a long time before that was even public, especially Chris. I mean, he's like, we got to get this off Facebook. And at that point, we had already met Sarah, who is now our community director and, and membership director now as well. Just last year, together, we've built our own social media space. Not again, it sounds like, oh, well, isn't that just like creating a private space where more people can't gather? And it's, it's the opposite. It's like really taking responsibility for the whole yoga for all. Cause you, you know, and this is something eventually I need to sit down and write about and, and delve into in, in a more thoughtful way, find the words. I certainly don't have them now, but like, how do we find ways to ways to keep everyone together? Like you can't just say yoga for all and be like, that's it. You can't just say like, may all beings be free and happy and that's it. <laughs> you know, like how do you really foster and hold space for everyone? That social site is something I'm really proud of because it's it's free too. I want to kind of go back into those first three years a little bit with you and and talk about your process in terms of you know I know you're you're still acting right and that's almost like a full time endeavor for you. So I would imagine you don't have a whole lot of time to plan for your classes because you're like so busy doing these plays on top of plays and rehearsals and things like that. Is my imagination correct? Or are you actually spending a fair amount of time planning your contribution to yoga with Adrian, even though you're not really getting that many views? I had a lot more time than I realized at the time, you know, like looking back, you know, the, the perspective of course is for me has changed. Now I'm like, Oh, to go back. I would long for those long hours of journal time and you know, 
I can remember using the mornings. I wasn't ever really working in the mornings. I had a job along the lines of, of people trusting me and looking back and being like, I cannot believe <laughs> I was, you know, given that much responsibility at that stage and that age and trust. Uh, I had worked for a while as a preschool teacher. Again, basically just accepting any job the art school here would give me. And that was with the city. And I had, just going back for a moment, I had accepted a job there teaching uh, preschool creative drama. So now I was doing the elementary, I was doing the preschool. That kind of landed me a professional job with benefits in the registrar of the school, which is run by the city of Austin. And then that led me to creating a relationship with the head of the registrar. And she basically created a job for me, like as her assistant managing the admissions for the school. So this is crazy, right? Like I'm not experienced enough to have this job, but I have it. And it was a big win for me. And it kind of plays into a big essence or flavor of my twenties, which was, I was always, and you know, similarly, I guess from when I was in high school, I wasn't like trying to act older than I was, but I was always trying to prove myself. Like I took things very seriously. So I actually worked there for a good bit. And I basically, before we started Yoga with Adrian, came to a point and, you know, it was through reflection of, of being in a relationship and, you know, all these things that help contribute to you making big decisions. I finally just had this moment where I was like, this is too much for me right now. Like there's no way I can continue to do this work that I'm getting through my agent or even teach yoga if I'm sitting at this desk for X amount of hours, Monday through Friday. So I left and, you know, for many years I I thought that could have been a big mistake. <laughs> like you could have retired when you were 41. Like you could have, you would have had benefits. You know, I didn't have insurance. That process to leave, was that difficult for you to make? It was mostly an inner turmoil, to be honest, for that one. I've had similar experiences. I had one later after we had started Yoga with Adrian too, uh, when working with the school where I, that one, I think I kind of self-sabotaged, to be honest, to like just create a change in movement as one does, you know, sometimes if we're not practicing mindfulness, like as a discipline, <laughs> but whatever, you know, I was learning. So I'm, I go back to mention that because yes, now here in the first three years of Yoga with Adrian, I had been in more than just the the nanny, you know, after school teacher work environment. I had been seated at a job. I had been working kind of crazy hours, basically teaching myself. I was like doing brown bear, brown bear plays, you know, with preschools children. <laughs> I had I don't have siblings. Like one can say you're born with, you know, a certain kind of nature to be good with children, but I, it was a fake it till you make it sort of mentality in almost every single one of my jobs up until that point. So all of this to say, by the time I had this opportunity with Yoga with Adrian, one, I didn't really see it as a job for quite some time. And two, I, I think I did have time. It was less computer and a lot of books. I was enjoying that task. It felt very fulfilling and I did have a brief job during the first three years of Yoga with Adrian working at a vegan ice cream shop part-time as well. So yeah, the first three years, it didn't really feel like a job. It was, I enjoyed it. And so I, I guess I made the time and 
if anything, I was like, yeah, back, trying to figure out how to memorize my lines, you know, for the nighttime. That was the struggle. And when you were on camera as an experienced performer, would you say you were performing at all or was it really 100% you in that scenario? Was it a very intentional thing, breaking the fourth wall, or did it just kind of happen organically and you guys saw that people were responding to it? It was intentional and it was not easy at first. I mean, and in a lot of ways, it's still a practice now, you know, especially because I have more awareness in every nook and cranny, you know, of, of what people are seeing, of what, what they're going to say. I try to beat people, you know, try to beat them to the punch and I can anticipate more now than ever before kind of what, what, what people might be perceiving or, or experiencing. So it's still a practice, but in the early days it was, it was definitely intentional and it was not easy. In fact, there are somewhere, I don't know where they are and I don't know if I want to know. There are a couple episodes as we called them back then that never saw the light of day, probably because it was just not, you know, and authentic wasn't a word we were even using. It wasn't in a, a part of our, our verbal vocabulary, you know, it was a felt thing. And, you know, Chris, we were experimenting. He was a good friend and a good director, really, you know, kind of a good outside eye, like, okay, now let's do that all again, but let's try to streamline it and just be, be yourself a little more, you know, and wasn't exactly telling me what to do, but inviting me to like, try it again. Let's try it again. Try it again. And then I think it became an or organic thing. And I just became not more comfortable, but more committed really to that being the thing that we were doing, the way in which I, I say this all the time. Sometimes it's not what you do, but how you do it. <laughs> so it's kind of focusing on that in the beginning a lot with intention. Talk a little bit about Benji and how Benji came to be a part of your life and then this production. He always had this idea that that it should feel like you're just in the room with me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's so great for yoga too, because we are actually trying to not change or transform or yearn or, or it's okay to yearn actually, but you know, we're not aiming for an end goal or something that we're not like, I want to be, we're peeling back the layers, you know, like I like the image of, you know, peeling back the old paint and, and getting to that like OG awesome vintage wallpaper. That's just like been there forever. Like there was this idea of not trying to become something, but to undo and, and return back to once true self back to home. And so we're like, yeah, like, you know, it kind of worked both ways. So he gave me the image or, or the the contemplation of Mr. Rogers. And that really stuck with me because I grew up with Mr. Rogers. And so it was, I don't know, kind of a, a thing from the very beginning that we make the production feel invisible, but that it still was really high quality and that you really feel like I was just a friend, you know, in my house and you were in your house. And so the dog, my first dog's name was Blue, creative name for a blue healer, also like Benji. He had a little more border collie in him, so he, he was a little bit different. But Blue originally was like pushed out of the frame, you know, like, oh, we're doing our yoga. And every once in a while, he would mosey in and we would just keep rolling. 
And gosh, it seems so crazy at the time. We just thought that was so fun. You know, like I've got a thrill, you know, like just big beaming smile, like, yes, Blue's going to be in this episode. Or there's an old Halloween video where I put Blue in a blue crayon costume, which I never do, by the way, for those listening, I'm not one to dress my animal up. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not my thing. And yeah, he would mosey in and out and, and that was great. But when he passed away, I was devastated. And the community, even though it was small at that time, was really connected. And, and we shared a vocabulary and, and Blue was kind of like a mascot. And I know it sounds totally ridiculous, although maybe not now because, you know, a Vice article just came out yesterday about Benji, solely about Benji. So <laughs> maybe, Benji's got his own profiles now, huh? Dude, the scales have tipped. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, 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 no comment. It's, Benji says no comment. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so funny. But it was such a devastating moment for me. And the, the community really responded so lovingly. In fact, I have a little watercolor painting of Blue, my first love, on my mantle that someone in the yoga community, yoga theater community had painted. It still sits on my mantle now. So all this to say, that was that experience. And then when Benji came along, I don't even know if I was ready for a new puppy, but my boyfriend and his son at the time, you know, moving from their heart space, you know, they were trying to help heal my broken heart and gifted me with the classic puppy dog under the tree, like at Christmas time scenario. <laughs> And it was dear Benji. And he's a, a real doll. But this time around, I decided to keep him kind of in the videos. In the early days, you know, as a puppy, no. But as soon as he proved <laughs> that he could hang, I started to bring him in. And then to answer your question, he became organically a bit of a, a tool to kind of also teach. Like you don't need the, you don't need fancy yoga pants. You don't need the perfect time allotted. You know, you don't need all the things that you think you need to show up for yourself for this particular practice. You don't need. And all that with just the dog being in the room, it seems crazy. But I know now from, from the feedback for many years now that it does kind of set the tone in a different way. You're about over 500 videos in now. Your videos have been viewed over half a billion times, which is incredible. <laughs> what have you learned about yourself throughout this process known as Yoga with Adrian? I mean, everything. <laughs> Ultimately, I've learned to move in a way that is focused on exploration, study versus doing or being. There's something about the consistency and the real just opportunity to show up and serve others that, that obviously bounces back to oneself. So for me, it's been, although sometimes scary because it's on display, and that's something that I never planned really <laughs> or even hoped for, but it's been a real opportunity of self-study, you know, and my whole journey is recorded between my journals and, and the, the project, you know, it really started out as a project, as a, as an experiment 
And I've learned that for every bit of myself that I put into it is like, that's the exact same amount that I get reflected back from someone. It may not be, you know, the same story, but it's a big human experiment. I've, I've learned everything. <laughs> I know that's an easy, it's not a compound answer, but I, what have I not learned from this experience? That's I mean, the better question, right? Yeah. What have you not yeah, learned? It's, there's something really special about remembering this idea that we are a reflection of one another and putting that in action through the regular daily practice, the consistency of showing up. We're still allowing it to unfold now, but I think there's something really specific about the daily, the like regular <laughs> practice, the showing up on a consistent basis to simply study, self-study, commit to a little inquiry. I've really felt like I'm living a once in a lifetime sort of experience to be able to serve others and also have that just daily reminder that, that we are a reflection of one another. What have you learned about people in this process? I've learned that people are good and that most people are afraid to lean into vulnerable places. And of course, that's different for everyone. But I hope that the Yoga with Adrian experience, <laughs> you know, whatever <laughs> that is, but the exchange, we'll call it. I hope that that is something that beyond just being accessible, which is something, and affordable, it's free. You know, <laughs> I hope that beyond those things that I, I have put, I've implemented to try to kind of take away the obstacles, that it's a place where people can explore themselves and explore their edges and get to know them so that they can find their center. And yeah, I really do think that we all share this common desire to be centered. And and maybe that's what good is, you know? I don't know what good is, to be honest. But I my life is definitely better for having had the experience and now, you know, the continued experience to talk to people and to practice daily being an active listener, you know? And this is not just responding to emails, you know? This is participating in the exchange. In fact, I thought this a lot in the early days and now it's like, oh Lord, how do I keep up? But I'm trying. That's why I built a team out of true necessity, not out of desire. A lot of times when we consider community building, it's not enough to just put the content out. It's not enough to just provide whatever it is <laughs> you're providing. You have to nurture it beyond that. Like it has to be something that if somebody has a question, you're, you're going to take responsibility, be there for them for the next step, you know, for the next step and the next step. You can't say, please lean into, you know, lean into this vulnerable place, let go of that, which is not serving you and then walk away. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Right. I had to make some sacrifices big time to be able to make that my number one relationship for, for many years. And now I'm at a place where I'm made those sacrifices and I'm able to have, you know, a team of people that I respect and trust to help me nurture the follow through so that I can have a life beyond that as well. What's the strangest place you've ever been recognized in public? I called the, the local vegetarian 
cafe recently just to see like what their menu was like. Cause you know, right. we're trying to support our local businesses. And the dude was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you yoga with Adrian? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh man, I need to change my color. No, it was sweet. Bathrooms are funny. You know, I w- we're in shelter in place right now and a family was on a bike and a woman said hello to me and Benji. And then she, they passed me and she turned back and said, I don't know if she said you're keeping us alive, but you're keeping us together or something right now. And I thought that was sweet. But a long time ago, like in 2013 or 14, I was in LA with my ex-partner and his son and we went to Disneyland. And these two beautiful Latina girls recognized me and asked me for a picture. And at that point, that had only happened like a handful of times. So that was really crazy and, and mind blowing. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's cool. And here's the thing is I'm human. Obviously, like it feels good. It's all, you know, like, but the truth is because I'm so close to and connected to my mission, you know, even back then I was laying in my bed thinking about like, we're contributing to the future of yoga, you know, like we could really influence this ancient practice and how it is revered and utilized in future generations to come. Like that's where my brain is. So when someone says hi to me, like when I get off a plane at Heathrow and there's a woman waiting for her daughter, but then she sees me before her daughter and she's like, Oh my God, you're with Adrian and gives me a big hug. <laughs> you're like, it's, you know, sure. I'm flattered, but I'm also going like, damn, this is so cool because this means that that many people are practicing at home. And I think the at-home practice is very different than the group practice, and they're both lovely. But I could go on and on about how I think an at-home practice is ideal (laughs) for healing and just for overall living in modern-day society in a healthy way. But that's all of their conversation. Young women in their 20s who came to you and said, hey, I want to do something like what you're doing. What advice do you have for me, whether it's with meditation channel or yoga channel or cooking channel or anything else? What what would you tell them? I would tell them to focus on their why. Get really clear without any judgment. You know, it can start at the top of the page. Get really clear on the why and to be open to your why evolving and transforming. You know, you can change your mind basically is what I would remind them, but get really clear because I think that is extremely important, especially now in modern day where a lot of young people and all kinds of people, I mean, look at us too, you know, like we want to devote ourselves to our why, which might be devoting to being of service to others or simply helping others find their meaningful contribution to society or helping others heal from trauma, like whatever it is, but to get really clear because then when the business isn't going well or when you know when you're in that that process of building something you have something really concrete to spin around you know or to ground in because it can be really discouraging and honestly i'm just realizing this is advice that was given to me as a young actor from someone that i really respect and holy moly i'm just having a light bulb moment of connecting these two <laughs> myself of you know she looked me dead set and i know that this person thought i was talented and respected me as a hard worker had seen my ethic 
And I even think she saw my heart, you know, as a, a kind-hearted person, you know, someone that would bring something to rehearsal to share with everyone or whatever. But she straight up told me, she was like, look, the thing is, find something else besides this. And I had al al already been teaching yoga and everything, but the advice was very clear. And it was like, find something that you really care about that has like a, a clear why, like a, you know, like something that really interests you. It was, she wasn't even speaking, you know, in terms of being of service to others, but find something that's really meaningful to you so that on the days where you go and you drive in your clunker junker to an audition and you're completely soaked with sweat before you even get into the room and it goes horribly and you feel looked down upon. It's just like this demeaning experience. <laughs> then you can walk out and go back to your, the other thing for a bit and nurture something that, that feels meaningful. So especially to young yoga teachers, I think it's important to, to be clear on your why and, and then also to let whatever it is you're sharing be a reflection of your experience, not something that was taught to you. You know, like my mentor, who I've mentioned several times, Jay Ed, you know, we used to have a consideration for rehearsal, which was like, you do all your homework, you do all your dramaturgy, and we did, we did full on table work, you know, we do that for like a week or depending on, you know, the scenario. You, you put all that information, you do all your research, and then you throw it away toss it away and just know that 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 all lives inside you. I'm not I'm not there to prove my knowledge. I'm here to lovingly coerce an honest and true experience, you know. And same thing as an actor like if you're trying to recreate last night's performance, it's going to suck. You have to be really present with the energy in the room. I like to end these interviews by just offering up a little reflection of my own from hearing <laughs> hearing your story starting with childhood and it seems to me that you kind of started off the way you ended up with where you are right now with, you know, you're kind of known for breaking the fourth wall through your work with yoga with Adrian. And as a child in that theater, that's exactly what you were doing as you were sitting there in the aisle playing and your mom was the professor. You were essentially breaking the fourth wall and with the model theater in the round, and playing, <laughs> playing with that, it's like there were almost no boundaries for what was possible. And I feel like you did that with yoga. You brought yoga into living rooms away from this sort of, it was going into this very elitist direction and you made it available for a lot of people. So you took down those walls and you took down the most important wall, which was the fourth wall and made people feel like there was a, a part of something bigger than just themselves in the communal sense. And so I just want to acknowledge you for that and for your courage and your commitment. It's not, it's not easy to do something every week and, and, and dedicate that much time and energy and trust into that process. But like you said, as you know, from your training, you learn to not be outcome oriented, but to be process oriented. So it seems like your whole life had been preparing you for this. <laughs> and I don't know if, you know, sometimes when we're in it, we can't really see it, but I'm, I'm just curious. Does that resonate with you? It does. And you're good. Wow, you're good. <laughs> I think I'm, you're good. It does. And I say that, you know, I probably would have shied away from that answer a couple years ago, but right now, especially right now, 2020, I feel like 
man, I should be so lucky to have something to share, you know, even if it's just a peace practice for the day, you know? Yeah. I feel very lucky to, to be in the position that I'm in. And I didn't mention this before, but I had vocal surgery twice throughout the course of yoga with Adrian, completely losing my voice. And I knew after that first time that I lost my voice and had to actually borrow money from Hilo Cooking business because we weren't hadn't made any money yet to even get the first surgery, I knew that my angels were trying to tell me something. I didn't know what it was. And I didn't listen. So then a year later, I basically had the same surgery. <laughs> And the same vocal cord. And I was like, oh no, what's going to happen? I'm going to lose my voice. And I've been thinking about the voice a lot lately and how I feel that we all have a responsibility, but we also have, you know, we should be so lucky that I'm so lucky to even have my voice. So what am I going to do with it? Exactly what you're doing with it, using it, using it for good. Thank you very much for talking to me. Wow. Thank you. It really is an honor and a pleasure. And I hope I get the honor and pleasure of, of doing a role reversal soon. And <laughs> yeah, thoughtfully, absolutely. thoughtfully prompting you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my interview with Adrian Mishler of Yoga with Adrian. So if you're inspired to do a deeper dive into her world, She's got a community called Find What Feels Good that you can join. She's also got a weekly love letter, which is the newsletter that she sends out to her subscribers. And you can get links to all of that in the show notes below. If you want to hear more stories like Adrian's, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and check out the archive. You're going to find tons of other interviews with amazing people. Some of them you've heard about, some of them you haven't, but all of them share something in common that you can take from their interview. They had to overcome some form of challenge or obstacle, whether it was personal or financial or emotional or mental, in order to start their movement. There's always a cost to starting your movement. And what I keep finding is that your greatest obstacle, the one that you wrestle with the most, is usually, like 99% of the time, the gateway to your liberation. So you're not only starting a movement, you're also becoming personally more liberated or self-realized or whatever you want to call it. If you like what you hear, please rate the podcast. It helps other people discover these inspirational stories. And again, you'll find links to pretty much everything that we discussed in the show notes, as well as a transcript of our entire interview on my website, lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. So if you don't like to listen to podcasts, you prefer to read them, you can do that on my website. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short inspirational missive that I send out every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. And if you have any feedback or suggestions about my emails, about my podcast, about me, <laughs> well, maybe not about me, but feel free to text your suggestions to me at, I'll give you my number, 323-405-9166. That's 323-405-9166. I look forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening. And I can't wait to see you next week with another conversation from the end of the tunnel.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.